0: Reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. You and
1: shout. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
0: This week's episode of Burn It All Down is dedicated to Hussein Bayat, aka Babu Uncle who died on April 13th of complications from COVID-19. He was a pillar of the Muslim community in Missyaga, and he will be very greatly missed. Hi, flamethrowers, Amir here, and I am running the show this week. I am joined by my co-host, Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University, Jessica Luther, author of the forthcoming book, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back, in Austin, Texas, and freelance extraordinaire, uh, sports reporter Shereen Ahmed from Toronto, Canada. And today, we're going to discuss what college sports might look like when we come on the other side of this. Plus, we will reimagine sports in general and think about what we might want to see different as we start to rebuild. Also, Brenda interviews Colombian national soccer player Vanessa Cordoba on the struggle to keep women's professional leagues alive in the face of rampant sexism and in the time of COVID. But before we get into that, we know the WNBA draft was on Friday. Me and Lindsay have a hot take on that. If you want a larger discussion, um, that is available now. Check it out. But I wanted to quickly, quickly ask the rest of my co-hosts a quick hit reaction moment for the draft. Shereen, I think oh. I know what yours might be.
2: I love New York Liberty, but I really appreciate how the WNBA created this day for me and for my love for UConn. So Megan Walker going to Liberty, because it's just, it's just so lovely. I'm just, I was very happy. I was very happy about everything. I'm very happy.
3: Uh, Jess, what was your... <laughs> yeah, I don't have any smart like WNBA an- analysis as far as like what this means for the team. I just want to mention that Satu Savoli had the most amazing blazer and background <laughs> yeah. fabric On her live feed, she just looked phenomenal. And I also want to say that Jocelyn Willoughby from Virginia, she was drafted 10th by Phoenix and has since been traded to the Liberty for Satori Walker-Kimbrough. Jocelyn Willoughby was wearing a sleeveless black dress and her arms were phenomenal. (laughs) And so like those two things really stood out for me, Satu Sabali and Jocelyn Willoughby. They just brought it with their fashion.
0: Now, Bren, I know you didn't watch, but you saw some of the reactions. As somebody looking at it from, like, the outside a little bit, what was your kind of takeaway based on the reactions you saw other people having?
4: Well, on the one hand, I mean, I loved all, all the reactions, and I loved how much people knew how much they cared about it. So, like, Lindsay had a thread on Power Plays, and then I was following you on Twitter and Instagram and everyone else. And so I was just like, this is a great thing. I'm learning. I know there's a lot going on with the mystics. And so I felt like (laughs) excited. The fact that everyone's super psyched about New York Liberty made me think I might get some visitors when the season happens. Oh, yes. So, you know, I was like, yay, but the fashion was beautiful. The pictures are beautiful, how excited they were. So yeah, it was cool following the, the reactions for sure.
0: Yeah, I had a great time watching it and talking to a friend of the show, Courtney Cox, tweeting through it. Me and Lindsay do a deeper dive on this. We definitely shout out Satsu's entire aesthetic and general awesomeness. We also dive deep on both a production grade for the draft. I'll give you a clue. It's a tale of two halves, you know, starts strong, (laughs) then trails off. And we also do a team-by-team breakdown before talking about some other takeaways and I gush about the Ivy Park like swag bags that the W delivered to the people which is why they all randomly had all 12 hats hats yeah (laughs) Yeah. so if you want to check out a deeper conversation about the WNBA draft again check out me and Lindsay's hot take it's out now I will warn you We were both ADHD Gemini's, so we have a lot in our heads and a lot of (laughs) connections that made a lot of sense to us, but it is a journey as a listener. Fair warning.
4: Listen immediately.
0: (laughs) All righty. So, of course, we are still in this time of uncertainty, and that is throwing a lot of things into flux. Certainly, we talked about last week college coaches, college football coaches being super eager and super sure that that season is going on. And we, we appropriately torch that. But I think that it opens the door for a larger discussion about what do college sports even look like coming back from this? What, what's happening here? And so we want to do a kind of deeper dive on the current atmosphere in college sports, the consequences, and what might the future hold. So Jess, I'm going to kick it to you.
3: Yeah. So I think everyone should just prepare for there to be a lot less college sports. I'm not sure though. One of the things I'm thinking about is that most of it will be non-revenue generating sports. Um, We've talked about our fears about women's sports getting cut. Um, So I don't know how much the public will actually see this because the front-facing college sports are basketball and football, right? For men, some for women. So I think it's going to be the sports that people forget about generally. And I'm I'm nervous about that. I did want to talk about the University of Cincinnati in particular because this week they cut their men's soccer program. And they're just such a good example of how how all of this financing works and how these non-revenue sports get the brunt and the the burden in these moments, even though I don't think they deserve it. Uh, One thing I want to point out is that after they announced this, the Title IX was trending on twitter in the after in the like wake of the announcement because people always immediately blame women's sports for this which is so ridiculous because title nine like what school is title nine compliant to begin with and that often has nothing to do with whether or not finances are equally shared and like so the idea that women's sports are somehow taking up all the money is such bullshit and i actually think the real culprit here is big time revenue sports and so i'm wondering what those will look like on the other side of this. And I'm just going to say, at Cincinnati, when ESPN reported this, they said Cincinnati soccer, men's soccer lost $726,000 last year. But Cincinnati spent $68.8 million on sports. And the thing about it is that there's this great piece, April 2018, from the student paper, the new record at Cincinnati. And so Between 2014 and 2017, Cincinnati's athletic department deficit totaled almost $102 million. And a lot of the way that they tried to deal with the deficit is they kept upping student fees. So if you went to the University of Cincinnati, you're paying over your four years something like $5,000 just to sports, just to try to make up this deficit, right? Which again, like I know Brenda will get into this, but like what's going to happen to college in general (laughs) um, moving forward? So If they don't have the student's money, what what will happen to college sports? But the thing that really gets me is like in this article, I'm just going to quote it. So this is part of the same article about finances from 2018. Quote, the head coaches of the football and men's basketball teams and their 16 assistants received a share total of $8.76 million in 2017. That's an average of $486,674 each. By comparison, the university's 381 student-athletes received scholarships totaling $9.31 million, roughly $24,442 per athlete. But also, USC's athletic department spent $2.1 million in severance payments in 2017 alone. Approximately 90% of that went to one person, former UC head football coach Tommy Tuberville, who Amira recently burned (laughs) on this podcast— because he sucks. He was also a shitty coach. He went four and eight when he was there. And so the idea that like the men's soccer program has lost $780,000 last year put that up against the fact that they paid to Tommy Tuberville, who wasn't even a coach there, $2.1 million, right? And so I understand that football and basketball bring in a bunch of money, but schools are willing to sacrifice so much money for the revenue-generating programs so I just the final thing, Cincinnati is a member of the American Athletic Conference and it's one of five mid-major conferences this week that's petitioned the NCAA to relax requirements to participate in the money-making football subdivision, that's hard to say, football bowl subdivision. If you didn't know, to be in the FBS, which is essentially what Division 1 college football is. Schools have to sponsor a minimum of 16 sports and maintain a certain football attendance requirement. So you need a stadium that can hold at least 15,000 people. So you got to spend the money to make the money, as they say. And schools are willing to do that, right? But they're asking them to relax it. And if the NCAA agrees, I feel like what they'll agree to is relaxing the 16 sports requirement (laughs) rather than like attendance stuff. So I'm wondering what that will mean for these mid-major schools. I know they'll take it all out on these non-revenue generating sports. And I'm just really nervous about what that means for all of those programs. So that's that's where I am with this.
0: Yeah, certainly. And, you know, I think this is a good segue because that's really the institutionalized and programmatic side of it. But it also trickled down and has major consequences for aspiring college athletes. Um, Shireen.
2: Yeah, thanks. I actually have a senior in high school and one who is an aspiring athlete and is showcasing and had her heart set on a school cross border. So as a parent, I'm reluctant to send her to the United States at all. At this point, and there's also the very real possibility that schools may not even open. I mean she plays a summer sport or it's called a fall sport, so her training camp would start in the beginning of August. but now universities and it's actually been reported by CNN that Boston University um, is has canceled all summer on campus activities and is now in discussions about not even resuming until January 2021. Why on earth would my child register for and, and not even play? Yeah, maybe she wouldn't use up the one year of eligibility for the NCAA, but still – Why would she do that when playing soccer is all she wants to do? So there's discussions happening, and she's not committed anywhere. And part of me is very grateful that she's not committed because then we have the flexibility for her not to enroll online. Like the whole thing is like, you know, maybe take a year off, maybe work or train at home or something because these are the discussions we're having now. And, you know, the the implications on this, And many of her teammates are going through the same thing. What do they do at this point? Particularly the issue of sending her you know to the u s is just that's just not something I feel like I want to entertain. It's a discussion for a different time, but I think that I mean I'm not even letting her go to the corner store right now, so like sending her to the United States is like really, really far off. but you know this is something that we have to talk about too, in terms of you know the mental health supports and emotional supports for athletes, and those are the amateur and student athletes as well like she's worked her whole life like this is really hard because I've been helping her achieve this goals since she was four and we're here and I can't begin to tell you how difficult it is and with how much dignity and grace she's handling it like if my promise canceled I would be real upset y'all she's just focused I think it's also the way that it's happening I'm waiting for like this moment where it gets to be a lot and it blows up and y'all cry that's usually what happens. But she's just steady and she's just focused on continuing training. And I just want to shout out all those, those students out there, if you're in university or you're in high school, this is a very uncertain time. And we see you in solidarity with you as well. And I really hope things settle for you to figure it out because the idea of schools not starting till January 2021, like there's so many questions and this is an unprecedented time where there is no roadmap, which is even more difficult. So.
0: I mean. Yeah, certainly. And and I kinda wanna piggyback on that just to talk a little bit about the impact on on current athletes with a eye to certain things that I feel like are gonna be overwhelmed as a system. I think the NCAA, who, you know, is already a clusterfuck, is just gonna have such a mess on their hands. Um, they've already announced, of course, that Folks in spring sports that were canceled get another year of eligibility. The or down effect of that is that it's going to create a bottleneck for the incoming people because you you have a holdover for eligibility, so you have way more talented folks than you have spots and scholarship offers. It's unclear how schools are going to navigate that. One of the big things that I have my eye on is transfer portal rules. But if you're an athlete and you need to transfer, you need to sit for a year, which You can apply for an eligibility waiver, usually on the basis of injury, on mental health, on being run out or having some extenuating circumstances at your current program. And one of the things that's really hard about that is that is, first of all. The One of the only ways that this gets approved is if your program that you're leaving signs off on it, which makes it really hard to transfer and apply for a waiver if you're saying the coach bullied me (laughs) and therefore, you know, this is why, you know, I need to leave. And so we saw this, for instance, happen last year with Avina Westbrook coming from Tennessee to UConn, where it felt like this was for sure going to be approved, and then it didn't get approved and the appeal didn't happen. And so what we've seen over the last few years is the number of transfer waivers going up and the NCAA approving less and less and less over the years. So three years ago, it was like 78% were approved and that's down to mid sixties now. And so it's a mess. And so one of the things that's happening in this moment is there's a lot of shuffling happening because people are trying to get closer to home or they're already home and deciding that maybe they want to stay a little closer. Family members who are ill or, you know, dealing with loss and grieving due to COVID. People who just feel more secure playing this out at home. And so I think both the transfer portal and generally like the scholarship allotment are two places where we're going to see a bottleneck. We're going to see overflow. And I, for one, do not trust the NCAA at all to sort mm-hmm. through this mess. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just going to be a complete mess. And I'm not, I'm not looking forward to that. Shereen.
2: Yeah. I just have a, a quick question of what you all think about how flexible and dynamic the NCAA will be in terms of relaxing and just for players that may want to come back another year or extending eligibility, or we know that winter sport athletes will get another year but the fall ones won't correct now what does that mean for like incoming this year like i just wonder what your hopes are and i mean amira i know you don't have a lot and we don't look to the ncaa to be like a light or beacon of light and hope we don't do that but do you think because this is unprecedented do you think there'll be an opportunity for them to try to be a little bit more understanding
0: i have the thinnest of hopes. In (laughs) June, there's set to be a vote that would expand transfer eligibility. So one of the things that's a little uneven now is those transfer rules that I laid out are specifically targeted towards men's and women's basketball, football, like there's certain sports that are controlled by that and other sports that are not. And one of the things that's up for a vote is doing a kind of blanket automatic one-year approval for anybody for a first-time transfer. So if it's your first time transferring anywhere, no matter what sport you're transferring from, you automatically can go there and play. So this vote is ha- set to happen in June. It was already scheduled for that, but I do know that some of the people arguing for this rule to go in place have used these extenuating circumstances to bolster their argument about why this is needed. And so I certainly have my eyes on that because I think that might be the one area where we see some possibility of change around these transfer rules but I think the people who try to keep power working as it works are crafting arguments to say basically it will be a mess and people will just use it as an excuse and you know they're terrible arguments so yeah and and maybe that's a good place Bren for you to jump in
4: (laughs) Probably. Lack of faith and pessimism is sort of my wheelhouse. <laughs> I don't know if I care at all about college sports right now. Because what I can tell you is that I'm teaching four college courses, that I'm also asked to continue to Zoom into faculty meetings, and I'm also asked to homeschool children. I'm also asked to continue with my research as planned, but without any research leaves and or budget guaranteed and and yet and yet with all of that my students miss the university so much they show up and they just talk like if i open it up for them to discuss their experiences They cannot stop talking about how they can't believe what they took for granted about a university community and being on campus and the way that it felt having face-to-face learning. So a lot of institutions of higher education have looked at this as like a wonderful petri dish of figuring out about online distance learning. And bottom line, it sucks. I can say it anecdotally from their perspective, and you're going to find it out empirically. It's absolutely not the same thing. It's not the same mentorship. It's not that it doesn't serve a purpose when it needs to. But that is not like the fundamental building block of the community that produces the type of citizens that you want to deal with a pandemic in 20 years that comes again, right? Right. So that relationship between faculty and students is the only essential mission of a university. That's it. There's nothing else. So, like, sports is part of that experience, and we all love it, and we can all enjoy it, and it's good for students, and I I certainly don't want to get rid of it. But I also just don't give a fuck. Like, it's like, seriously, I care about the athletes, right, The, the, the students, But do I care if I ever see Nick Saban again? No, (laughs) right? No, I don't. And I think Um,
0: this is 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 really important, Brent. Also for folks to know that. There's universities that aren't going to survive this. We've seen even I have, you know, friends at the University of Arizona, us in academia are really feeling for them. They're all being furloughed, even tenured faculty. Right. Like that, like the most secure people within the institution outside of, you know, athletics are not are being furloughed. And so The university itself is really in a precarious state, and that's why you know I think it's also really hard to think about college sports and not think about the college itself, because a lot of institutions that we take for granted are just not going to be here.
4: They're not going to be here, and part of why they're in the position that they are is because of administrative bloat, which has happened in most colleges and universities over the last 10 years, and athletics is a central part of it. It's a central part of microfinancing. For example, to say you're going to pay $100 million for X stadium that you're going to pay off in X number of years and stuff like that, not only is it on the backs of student fees, but it's on the backs of depressed wages for faculty, free labor from students, and a buy-in from the community and state taxpayers. So, so this has nothing to do with the essential mission of the college because, you see, we're still having the semester. We're we're not having Nick Saban's not busy right now, but I am. So, so one of us is essential and one of us isn't.
2: I mean, I'm hearing you and I, I appreciate everything you're saying, but for someone like me, Who's watching a child whose idea of college, university is completely wrapped around sport? It's really hard to divorce that. And I'm a brown parent, like, obviously, education is everything, but it's so hard to separate that when my kid has been falling through a system, which is the only system that exists and that she knows on how to. Get there through with sports. Do you know what I mean? So I, I of totally course, like, empathize. I'm sympathetic.
4: With, it's of just course, like, I don't. I'm sympathetic I, to dreams dash. I,
0: I don't know what to do. I'm, I want mean, to burn everything down. I think, one of, the, I think down. one of the things that, that that raises is the point that I kind of wanted to raise about what this is going to mean for colleges who really market themselves completely tied to their sporting identity and so one of the only times yeah. you see commercials for schools are during march madness right or during college football, Pro- playoffs. football games and i'm like yeah. oh my god we had a commercial who knew but that's <laughs> yeah. the only time you see it and the other kind of part of that to your point shereen is like penn state for instance understands itself their their mythology about themselves is all through sporting moments when they recruit They recruit people through these kind of sporting congregations around football or women's volleyball or whatever. They recruit people around this community sporting culture. That's the buy-in. That's how they tell stories about themselves. And so what does it look like if we've for so long been wedded to a model that for many schools, and not all of them certainly, but for many schools, the entire thing that they're going on is about what sports will give you once you're in this space paired with the fact that people are receiving way more instruction into how to get into these spaces via athletics than through book learning then through testing whatever because it opens doors that oftentimes are closed off to other people and so I completely, you know, empathize with what you're saying. And I think that is just an indictment of the system itself. Um, and, and that's kind of where we're at with it, is that under this moment, all of that's crumbling down. Bren?
4: Yeah, as I said, I'm so sympathetic to Dreams Dashed and the way in which young people have worked so hard and are going to be so disappointed. I am equally feeling that for students that had, for example – their first semester was supposed to be a semester abroad and they worked so hard for the last 12 years to get the language and to do the IB programs and to do the things that would allow them to do that all the dreams dashed are valid and heartbreaking but it's also a moment i just i just can't help but argue that the essential mission of the university is not to provide a space for people to play sports it's part of the community it's great it's wonderful it's beautiful when it's not exploitative. But it is. And it's time to rethink it altogether. Because right now, administration is going to start to make cuts to faculty. And it's going to be argued that they're in this crunch, and thus there has to be less teaching. And to call a student-athlete a student-athlete with student in it first has been ridiculous at some of these schools for so long. And it's a moment, I think, instead of trying to like cobble back and see what we can do with less to say, no, like what kind of a college do you want? And sports for me is just it's not the central mission.
0: Next up, Brenda interviews Colombian national soccer player Vanessa Cordoba on the struggle to keep their professional professionally alive in the face of rampant sexism.
4: It is my pleasure and honor today to welcome Vanessa Cordoba to Burn It All Down. She is joining us from Bogota, Colombia. She's a professional football, for parentheses, soccer player, representing the Colombian national team, and is also playing professionally for La Equidad. She has been advocating for the last few years around issues of gender and equity in football. So thank you so much for being here today, Vanessa.
1: Hi, Brenda, and hi to everyone who's listening around the world. Thank you so much for your invitation, and I'm very happy to be here with you today.
4: So one of the reasons that prompted me reaching out to you was about a little over a week ago, I read an open letter that women footballers had sent to the Colombian Federation. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what was said in that letter, how it came to be?
1: Well, I mean, we we were struggling a little bit to get our league back this year. We finished last year's, everything went great. Well, of course, after having to publicly express our uncomfort towards the the way women's soccer was treated here in Colombia, not only with our league, but within the national team. You know, I think it's it's a worldwide issue. We can see it in different national teams. So we got to our point where we just said everything everything publicly in a press conference. So after that, I mean we got the attention of the government, well the Federation started to get more on top of it as well. So we got to get back our league because they had said after two years of doing it, they said, okay, we're done with it. It's finished. So after all that happened, we just said, okay, enough. We've got nothing to lose. We're going to tell what's going on. So we did it. We got it back. It was good. I mean, it was only two months long. Not enough, but it's part of the process. So we just... Took it and then we kept playing. We finished the league and then again we got to the same point where we didn't know when our next league was gonna be or anything about it. So we got to like show our 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 like our the way like why we were worried about our jobs because at the end of the day it's it's about four hundred to five hundred women soccer players' job. So we expressed it to the public with journalists and we got the attention again. Um, And they said, okay, listen, we're going to do it. Uh, We started working a bit closer with Di Mayor, which is the entity that governs professional soccer in Colombia. It's part of the federation. So we, we got the chance to sit with our president. We we told him like our point of view. They said, okay, listen, we're going to work this out. It's a big struggle. we got no sponsors. It's very hard to get sponsors for women's soccer or women's sports, which I actually don't believe. But that's what he said. So things started getting on track. And they, they said, okay, there's going to be a league. There's going to be 20 teams. The teams are going to start calling their players again to start preseason. The regulations were supposed to come out around the time we had to we, like everything of coronavirus came out came out so a lot of us started um preseason without signing contracts because we we're gonna we were supposed to sign it the week the regulations came out and that week as I said it was the one that we all had to go into quarantine so I mean that that's kind of what happened. So we decided to publicly like give our opinion because the situation of Independiente Santa Fe came out where they said in their press release that they were suspending the women's team's contract. Whereas with the men's team, they were just going to bring it down to 50%. It was like, it did a huge boom here in Colombia because I mean, people are aware of women's soccer and our situation, but this was like, like people just went crazy about it. So the team had to go out next day saying like no, people misunderstood what they wanted to say, that women's a women's contracts weren't suspended. They were also gonna were gonna like got like they were gonna bring it down to fifty percent. So I mean it was something good. I mean, because it opened a door to show the reality of many football players here in Colombia, women football players. Because Santa Fe's issues was like the best of the worst, you know? So a lot of people started um, talking about it and we didn't really say anything about it because we understand the situation where we are as, as like as a, as, as a society, you know? So we decided to come out with this open letter, not directly to the Federation, but to the public, you know? And we practically said, listen, we are aware of what's going on and we want to, like help our country in whatever way we think like people think might be the best way but like here we are to support our society we wanted to show our solidarity with with Colombia but besides that we wanted also to point out um the situation we were living and how this uncertainty is not because of the coronavirus it's become are constant, you know, in women's soccer, and it's become the common denominator. And we think that's wrong. But again, understanding the situation of the, the, the coronavirus and how difficult it, it has been economically for the teams. So that was kind of the point of, of the letter and, and what we practically said in it. We divided it into three parts uncertainty, like labor uncertainty, which comes down again to the we need equal opportunities to play. You know, the, the reason why teams right now don't have contract obligations with us is because we didn't get the chance to even play because we had to spend the first months of the year fighting to get a league. And then it went down again to what kind of like working conditions we have. So for example, last, last year's working conditions where all teams had to have at least five professional like players. So they had assigned five women football players. So the rest, the rest, the the other 20 that could be part of the team didn't have to have a contract. So, can you really call that a professional league. Um, So we wanted to point out those things as well.
4: And what are the salaries on average? On average. Even if you um, get a contract, right? If you're one of the lucky people. Or yeah, talented. All- They're all talented. I know. Uh, but <laughs> I also mean, if you are fortunate to get one.
1: To get one. Yes, I would. We have no like last word on this because we don't see everyone's contracts. But I would say around one to two million. I mean, the minimum wage here is 800, eighty like, something million pesos. So, I mean, it's a little bit over that. But and on average, you know, because we have two or three cases which go like to way to the other side, like they're good. But on the majority of cases, we get like the minimum wage to like uh, to one or two million pesos.
4: And so in dollars, we would... So
1: right now, one million pesos, uh, one dollar is equal to three... million uh, million thousand pesos
4: so it's about 250 dollars is that a month or a week a month a month and bogota is not a very cheap city if i remember Uh, no no it's quite expensive (laughs) but yeah wow that's
1: yeah that's difficult it is it is it is difficult yeah i would i would put it as like the minimum wage and a little bit more a couple of bucks more.
4: So, so how much we've read a lot and we've covered on this show a lot, the ongoing gender discrimination within the Colombian Federation. How much has that affected this process of trying to get this league off the ground?
1: I think it affects in every way, socially and as athletes. You know, we can train as much as we One, you know, we can train 20 hours a day. But at the end, if we don't have competition, it's worth nothing. And there's also a different way you grow through competition. So the, the entire process as athletes and as a sport in Colombia, it's obviously, like, limited because of this. And if we don't get this support in the national team, that last, like, last Pan Am Games we got the 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 gold medal, like, what else do you want from us? Like, how do you want us to be world champions if you give us a two-month league? How do you want us to be world champions if some players before they had to buy their own tickets to come to camps? So, I mean, it, it does, at the end of the day, sum up, which you can see on our game. But even that, like, with that in mind, we got gold medal in Panam Games. So imagine if we did get the support we needed.
4: Right. Where do you see, do you see any good allies right now for, for you? As athletes? Or as as athletes. Colombian women players. Who, where are you looking and hoping to find some support?
1: I think this past year we found support like through the government, but soccer is such a political sport it's just mind blowing, amazing, and not only in Colombia. Like many people say, FIFA has more power than the UN, and I wouldn't be surprised because it moves a lot of people, and there's so many people around this industry. So I've, I've found, in, like, obviously not a hundred percent, but we found some support on the government. But at the end of the day, I think it's been between us, you know, between us, women players. I mean, we're not all best friends, and we don't have to be all best friends. But we have found like support on each other, and we, we've understood that the only way to get this working and on, on like on its feet, it's being together. So I think our biggest support has been ourselves, like our like our teammates and in all the teams, you know, our. Our colleagues to say only women because men haven't done much for us. Men like our men colleagues. So I think I, I would say it, it's been on us, and we haven't yet found that one business or or brand who has really like said, okay, I'm gonna support. I mean, Nike has been a big one. Say they, like they've offered their support through train like free training for professional soccer players that ha- don't have a contract right now. Like they found their way around to helping us. But I mean at the end of the day it comes down to us and to keep working for this.
4: So the, the men's union, the men players, you, you haven't gotten much support from them?
1: The the men's union, I would say it's our union as well. I mean I forgot to yeah. They they've been with us since day one of the press conference. So yes, they've been very present and like Obviously, they're part of FIFPRO. So, yes, they have, but as the association, you know, as not as men's soccer, but it, they've done their job as as the union. They support us as the union, but not as men's soccer. So, yeah, from, from the men's side, no, I, we haven't really had any support. If If we have, it's been from players who have retired already because obviously they have nothing to lose.
4: That is a good degree of infuriating. When people listen to stories like this, almost always they respond sympathetically when it comes to like feminists and sports podcast listeners. And something they always ask is, you know, what can people, can people do anything to help? Is there anything if people are looking at this and just are sort of furious at the injustice? I
1: mean, I think we've we've found a way to like grow a little bit, the awareness towards us. I think right now, yes, people have shown empathy towards us, but also understanding that there are worse situations in different other industries, you know, right now. Nonetheless, I think we have, found a way to, to get people into sports and to women's soccer. And I think that's the big difference at the end of the day, between men's soccer and women's soccer. We know our worth as activists, you know, as athletes, as more than athletes, you know, we, and I think the U.S. national team, it's the perfect example. I mean, Merpino knows that she's way more than just a soccer player you know and I think she's one of those lucky people who have had the chance to show it on and off the field and even though here in Colombia we don't have uh, we haven't reached those objectives yet as like with world champions or anything but we are aware of what women's soccer means to society and what it means for women you know to to all of like I grew up watching soccer and i never had seen a woman's soccer game live before i played it you know so we are aware of this and people have like grown this little like love towards our game you know and they say you know good for you that, that are doing all of this but i mean at the end of the day what people can do is consume women's soccer you know talk about it um or if there's no women's soccer games on tv ask for it, you know, mention your TV cable and say, hey, I would like to watch women's soccer. The, nowadays, we have social media. Like, if you want to keep on, on contact, like, with, with what's going on with your favorite players, like, follow them and ask them questions. You know, I think we, we have grown a very close relationship with people who support women's soccer because we know it's way more than just about soccer or sports.
4: Mm-hmm. absolutely. So going forward, how are you seeing the aftermath? What Do you have any sort of... This is happening all over the world that COVID probably will be used to cut the most vulnerable parts of soccer. We've seen that again and again. And so I know that there's been cuts throughout Latin America, Paraguay, Uruguay. We'll see the same probably, I expect, everywhere. How do you think we can think about women's soccer after, post-pandemic?
1: I think this is going to change us entirely towards which direction. I have no idea. I hope for the best one. But, I mean, I think, again, at least in Colombia, you know, football or soccer had gotten to this place where it was full of violence and it was almost impossible to go to the stadiums without getting like uh, probably exposed to any like um fight or anything in between the two teams that were playing. So I think w- with this we having so much time apart, people are going to want to be back together, you know, and the day we get the chance to be back in the stadium, I think we're going to have to reconsider a lot of our behaviors that we were having as fans um, talking from the fan point of view. So I think women's soccer, it has been um, helping people going back to stadiums as a family, you know, and, and it, it was one of the, the I think for me, it was one of the most beautiful things to see when, when I was playing, you get to see again, like the entire family. So the husband, the wife with the kid and the baby, you know, and you wouldn't see that anymore in men's soccer. So I think, uh, after COVID, I think we're going to have the chance to fo- keep uh, using that as an excuse to keep women's soccer alive, you know? And I think having the men's league kind of do the same and, and, and try to make that the common denominator again is going to be huge. So I think th- that's going to be one of the most important things we have to that we're going to be able to contribute to society. You know, I think, again, it's so uncertain how things are going to work out. I, I really hope we get the chance to go back to the stadium soon, though probably it's going to take a long time. But yeah, I think it's going to help reconsider society. And having women in the field, it sends a huge message, which hopefully Latin American countries that are so behind in these topics are going to value it a bit more.
4: And just the last question, then I also miss football desperately. How are you staying ready to be back on the pitch? I think. Are you the- running around your house in circles, or how <laughs> do you
1: do it? No, well, with Equidad, we have trainings every day through Zoom, so that's kind of the way we we're still connected as a team we have our the goalkeeper session is it's different so um we do a lot of jumping you know we 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 use if we don't have cones or anything to to like show the limit of our goal we use books and we have to be a bit creative here but we do have to jump a lot and do burpees and a lot of changing directions, you know, luckily in my position as a goalkeeper, we don't do much running. So I'm not that desperate to run, but I'm telling you, I think these workouts have been worse than like on the field. So hopefully this will end soon. This is like a preseason for real, but no, it's been very cool to, to kind of, use your imagination to actually do your, your kind of workouts and try to apply it to the field. You know, I think it's something as, as athletes have started to use, but not fully. But when you do exercises, actually think on the player you're training for, you know? So if you're going to jump to, like for a cross ball, well, here, clearly here you don't have a ball coming at you or in the air. So you have to actually imagine the entire Play so I think it works a different part of your brain. I I, I I
4: got. I kind of feel like you all should post some clips from it, and we can all try to follow along.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you know I think I haven't seen many. I mean, I see athletes working out. I've seen yeah, yeah, a couple of of players working out, but most of them, you know, they have their. I mean, men players, so they have like their amazing gym, exactly. Go outside, us, we don't really get that. So, yes, I'll consider putting some workouts. Well,
4: Vanessa Cordova, thank you so much for coming on Burn It All Down, and we hope to have you back again soon.
1: No, thank you. Thank you, seriously, for, for being on top of women's soccer, and not only in Latin America, but in, in Colombia. It's very impressive. I'm honored to be here. So, thank you. Hopefully, we'll get the chance to meet personally soon and hopefully in a stadium. I would love it.
0: All right. We touched on this a little in the last segment, but really what I wanted to ask you, we're in a moment where like we said, a lot of institutions, a lot of sporting spaces are kind of crumbling down, but it also creates a possibility to thinking about rebuilding and reimagining, a possibility for thinking about what might sports look like going forward, and if you were in charge what would your blueprint be? What would your game plan be? So I wanted to shift the tone a little bit, put on our kind of imagination hats. If I gave you all a wand and made you sporting commissioner for whatever the globe, the world, what's one thing you would change as we rebuild and reimagine? How might you do it?
4: Bren? I have a, a really long laundry list of things that I can just say quickly. And it's mostly about soccer, which is I would love to see a mixed gender competition. I don't know what you all think, but I would love to see that. It's like in tennis, I love that too, actually. And the rules are exactly the same for both the men's and women's side. So I don't know why it wouldn't be possible. In Colombia, they have a game called Golombao where actually the first goal has to be scored by a non-identifying boy. <laughs> like, like, I don't know how to say that. Like, either non-binary or female-woman identified. And then it switches every other goal. And you can't have majority of boys in youth soccer on the offense. So, like, there's ways to do it. You can't just sort of throw it together, but it'd be so cool. Anyway, I would also like all star games. I don't know, Shereen, you might not think this is a great idea, but I, <laughs> <laughs> but I I would like it. They never have all star games. Like, I love the basketball ones, and I don't know. And I would like clubs to be, you know, deprivatized or made back public. And then I guess, of course, like my co-hosts are gonna do more on this, but of course, I'd like it to be an anti-racist, anti-homophobic, and gender-inclusive sport.
0: Yes, certainly, Shereen. I'll just say, women, women everywhere,
2: women. <laughs> yes, that's just that's just my philosophy in, in administration and coaching and officiating. That's what I I want. I want everywhere from FIFA to NCAA. I want in grassroots leagues. I want in high schools. I want all the time everywhere. We don't see it like everything from NCAA having on their website saying that over 40% of NCAA women's teams have a female head coach. And this is in 2016. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about only women's sports. I'm talking about all sports. It is okay for women two coachmen, Becky Hammond, hello, Brittany Donaldson, hello, we can do it. And for those that don't know, Brittany Donaldson is the assistant coach to the reigning and continuing 2019 NBA champions, the Toronto Raptors. I will just add that. Now my point is, is that you, oh, sorry. i got so excited i knocked over shit on my desk um (laughs) i get so excited when i talk about the raptors holy shit I'm in a little tent I made on my laptop with my mic, like with a big like shawl over me. And I just get so excited under here, everyone. The thing is, is that just just women, increase them, increase the visibility, increase the opportunity for young girls to aspire, increase mentorship programs, increase opportunities for internships. Because if you're going to use that fucking student labor, at least intern the kids and give them a, a pliable, at least give them an opportunity to... Put that on the resume. Give them something back. Don't just take their labor and run away with it. Help build it. Women are the pillars for everything in the world. I'm not overstating a fact. This is just reality. And I don't understand why they're shut out. I want them in the decision-making rooms. I literally need women to be in control of everything. Like, I've already decided where I want my co-hosts to be as queens of the universes. Like. I, I've talked about this. I Behind the board I already said I want Brenda to take over FIFA. I already know this. I want Jessica to reestablish the entire NFL and like football college. I want Amira to basically dictate and create policy for everything in terms of college sports. I want Lindsay to do the WNBA. I'll take over hockey. No offense, Danny Ryland, but you need me out here. See, so the thing is, is that I've already I've already put a lot of thought into this. There's so many people who have so many good ideas that aren't getting the exposure and opportunity. Again, women, women everywhere, women. <laughs> Jessica,
3: yeah. So all of that. Anyone who's heard me talk about my book that came out in 2016 called "Unsportsmanlike um, Conduct" knows that I've been on the same. Beat for a long time now. And I have been advocating for a long time that we need to take the big money out of college sports. I, you know, we just had that entire great segment before this one where we really made the case for why this is such a problem. And, you know, people have been making this case for a long time. And I do feel like this is like a moment where we have to reassess. I mean, the problem with so much around college sports is the arms race for these college coaches that get these giant contracts and then they, dump them when they suck at coaching and they continue to pay them millions of dollars even when they're not coaching like the the whole thing i mean we are paying assistant football coaches at college universities over a million dollars a year to coach sport i mean that is so ridiculous and all of the ripple effects of that That are so bad. So I mean, like I could just wave a wand. I mean, I don't know how you do it in the current system because the NCAA is set up by the very people who make all the money off of the NCAA. So I don't know, like the how of how you fix this. But if I could do anything, it would be like I think Brenda said it before. You know, college football coaches shouldn't get paid any more than the professor who gets paid, like the highest professor salary or the average professor salary. Like if they're gonna be workers at a university, a co- educational institution, that's what they should get paid. Um, we should just cut the arms race. We should put that money into either other college sports, make it, give it to the women's sports who so desperately deserve it after all of this time, but maybe just give it back to the school, <laughs> like put it into the actual education oh God, part, of the educational institution. Yeah. Right. And so I just feel like I feel like that's such a doable thing Uh, at the same time that I feel like it's also impossible just because of how the current system is set up and who controls it. So that would be, that would be one of the first things that I would want to do.
0: Yeah. So part of, that I mean transfer stuff obviously in the governance like uh, Jess and Shereen talked on but a lot of what I've been thinking about is youth sports and how youth sports come back especially thinking Bren about um, gender segregation and youth sports starts so early it starts so so early and it starts early in a way that has bears no logic if your logic in general for gender segregation in sports is that you think there's a physio- physiological difference in that boys and men are stronger and faster and all of that and therefore must play Separately, well, that logic doesn't hold up at the youth level when girls who develop earlier and hit puberty earlier, really up through middle school, are the absolutely the ones kicking ass in sports. So it doesn't even hold up to that logic um, if you subscribe to it. And I and I feel that, you know, youth sports, this is a moment not only where we could see the kind of governance of sports change, but I've been thinking a lot about exposure to various sports one of the things we talk about is how people get tracked into certain sports so if you're a black kid from Mm, philly you know you have a set amount of sports in front of you given to its possibilities and not others and we've seen what a little bit of exposure and resource has done for say women's bobsledding elena myers here you know friend of the show personally recruited a lot of black women to the sport seven out of nine women of the u.s women's bobsled team on the last olympic cycle where black women and when they did the don't rush challenge for bobsledders across the world there was so much melanin in that video like that is what (laughs) a little bit of exposure and a little bit of resources did to fundamentally change the face of bobsledding and so one of the things that has happened in this moment is that technology has allowed us to see connections and generosity in ways that were always there right if you could always hold a zoom workshop if you could always demonstrate you know take time to like my kids are doing virtual karate huh. what would it look like to do oh, a wow. virtual karate workshop for people who never have had exposure to mixed martial arts right yeah, i think yeah. so much when yeah. i was when i was a young child smith college held these women and girls in sports days and you would go over to smith and he would spend the entire day from 8 a.m until 6 p.m and you would have a small group. And over the course of the day, you cycled through a million different sports. It was the first time I ever tried rugby. It was the first time I, I did crew. It was the first time I even learned about sports. That I never I never heard of rugby. And the next thing I know, I'm being left, lifted up in a scrum. You know, like that did <laughs> yeah. so much.
3: I love and that image. So
0: So thinking, I was very as you can imagine, but I think that one of the things that this moment has showed me is like, a lot of the excuses that we tell ourselves about why things are closed off or why information is clustered in various areas has just been knocked down. And so I hope we take this spirit of kind of generosity and the possibility of connection and think about how we might apply that and transmit possibilities to youth and exposure and all of these things that might just plant seeds that develop into something beautiful. And so that's that's what I would do. All right, it's time for everyone's favorite part of the show, the burn pile. We are coming off an epic burn pile from last week, which I feel like is still a little bit of flame. So I'm hoping to <laughs> build on that. Brenda, get us going.
4: I'm gonna burn two things that I don't know anything about, which is esports and hockey. But I do know about racism. And I mean a bit, so I can talk about this burn, but I just feel like it needs to be covered. So EA Sports has do you all play NHL 20? So I'm not alone in not exactly knowing how this works on PlayStation, but I did look at some screenshots, and it's a very complicated game. And many of the Canadian players have been live-streaming their playing, including Vancouver Canucks goalie Thatcher Demko. And uh, basically this past week, when he got on and started to play, he noticed that the team names, player names, etc. were racist slurs. And this has been popping up constantly. Apparently EA Sports does not have any reporting function for any kind of racist, sexist, or homophobic violations that happen on this game, at least the current edition of the game, which is, I guess, PlayStation 4. There are millions of people, at least a million, who play it anyway. And apparently, they also have no explicit policies, though they had said that, quote, we do not tolerate racist or derogatory language in our games, end of spoke. End of quote. So um, you know, basically, if you look at it, it's very complicated. And I just want to burn that A, everybody knows that people are subject to racism in esports. This has been like a story for a bazillion years. So it's not like you couldn't have figured this out. And B, look at the technology that is in this game, how realistic it is, how much work goes into it, but you didn't care at all to make any kind of filter to protect people, especially young people, from experiencing this racism in the game. So I just want to burn the lack of forethought and care and just the blatant racism at neglecting this feature of what is a really complicated game to make.
3: Burn. Burn.
4: Burn. Burn. Jess? Jess?
3: Yeah, so I'm bringing the International Olympic Committee, a permanent resident of our burn pile, back to the top of the pile for a minute. Uh, This is going (laughs) to be brief, but it deserves to be torched. So because the Tokyo Games have been pushed back a year, and rightly so, especially given that Japan is currently in the middle of a scary surge of coronavirus cases that's stressing its medical system, there are inevitable massive costs associated with the postponement, right? Right. So on Thursday, the Tokyo Olympic organizers and the IOC held a teleconference to talk about some of this, but they wouldn't say how much the overall delay is actually going to cost. It will be billions, though, with a B. Most likely somewhere between two and six billion, according to media in Japan. And I just I'd bet on the higher side of that uh, because Olympic costs are constantly outpacing their public estimates. So the IOC said that they will be giving out. Several hundred million dollars in an emergency contribution, but none of that's for Japan. It will go where money is needed, though, to help struggling international sports federations and national Olympic committees. I'm sure anyone who listens to this podcast will not be surprised to learn that the entirety of those costs for the postponement are going to fall on Japan and its citizens. The IOC has every host city sign a contract, and part of it is that it's the countries that are hosting, It's they deal with the financial fallout of a postponement. And I think it's fair to assume most of that's going to be public money based on what we know about the financing so far for these games. According to the AP article where I read all of this, it said, quote, Japan says officially it is spending $12.6 billion, but a national audit says the figure is twice that much. Whatever the total, all but $5.6 billion of it is public money. And that's so far, right? So like so much of the world, Japan is going to be facing a tremendous economic uphill climb on the other side of COVID-19 whenever that other side comes. That they have also recently paid billions of dollars to host this sporting event and are slated to pay out billions of more, all with little to no financial help from the organization that's going to make the most profit from all of it. Well, I want to burn that. So burn.
0: Burn. 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 Uh, Shirini.
2: Okay, so if the world was burning and things were crumbling, what who would you ask to come and consult you? Obviously, you would ask the Burn It All Down team. But President Forty Five, Chito, President Agent Orange, whatever you want to call this man, has asked. Hold on to your hats, folks. Adam Silver, Roger Goodell, Mark Cuban are among the people who will be advising this man on how to get sports back and, like, sort of upstart the economy. In addition to them, he's asked the Major League Baseball Commissioner, Rob Manfred, UFC dude and resident twat waffle, Dana White, who has been in our burn pile (laughs) several times and who Amira did burn, metaphorically, last week for his absolutely – cheapo greedy and that's a technical term i use from jessica luther way of managing something and insisting on holding events during a global pandemic pga tour commissioner jay monahan lpga commissioner michael Wan, usta patrick galbraith mls commissioner don garber wwe you know person vince mcmahon nascar vice chairperson Melissa kennedy nhl commissioner gary bettman then the New England Patriots owner, Robert Kraft, and of course, the Dallas Cowboy owner, Jerry Jones. No, this is not a comedic NSL like Saturday Night Live skit. This is actually the committee. And you have noted know that other than the LPGA, there are no women's sports represented on this. But I'm not going to take this seriously, because it's not as if this is actually going to be an effective body of which that are going to advise this man. I mean, can you really take vince mcmahon seriously can anyone i mean i i I can't so this is who's going to be advising 45 who said very astutely i want sports back we have to get our sports back i'm tired of watching baseball games that are uh, 14 years old this is what i know that's a terrible impersonation i'm so fucking (laughs) mad y'all it's better than your british accent (laughs) It's better than my British act. Thank you. It's like I read this and it was from reputable newspapers. I got this article from the National Post. This wasn't from The Onion or The Beaver. This was not satirical. This is a thing that is happening. This man is real. I mean, part of me wonders, why doesn't he just get Jared Kushner to advise him on everything because he's unqualified in doing it anyway? I want to burn all of this down, in addition to being frustrated and not focusing attention on medical health experts, community leaders who can talk about inequalities in the health system, talk about how brown and black bodies, you know what I want to see? I want to see 45 sit down and fucking listen to Colin Kaepernick. That's or Rihanna. That's what I want to see. I want to see medical health experts in there advising, but that's not what's going to happen because this is Trump we're talking about. I want this to go up in mighty high flames. Burr. Burn. Burn.
0: Alright, I have a quick burn and then I have another burn. My quick burn, I'm obviously burning Kyle Larson for saying the N-word because don't do that. And he said it with the hard R too. And he said it and you could hear the recording and everybody was like, uh, Kyle, buddy, we can all hear you. And he was like, Oh shit. And they're like, Yep, heard that. And then they were like, guys, just don't say anything. Well, guess what? We all heard it. We all heard it. So obviously you get on the burn pile because that's just like not mm, okay. But also the part of that that I do also want to draw attention to is that Bubba Wallace, as your only Black NASCAR driver, should not be everybody's shield in this moment. She, he should not be called on to to talk. He put out a very lovely statement addressing the fact that he had to be, you know, called in to address this. But now they use his statement as another shield for fan reaction to what they think should happen to Kyle Larson. He's feeling some consequences for this, but all of this was a mess. I meant Bubba Wallace. Did I say Bubba Wallace? Okay. Anyways, all of this was a mess, and that gets on the mini burn pile. But what I really want to burn is to go a little deeper onto one component of the committee of awfulness that Shireen just laid out, and that is we need to spend a little time talking about the McMahons. This past week, Florida Governor DeSantis, who's (laughs) awful too, made an announcement that employees at professional sports and media production with a national audience would be deemed essential. Now, who could he possibly be talking about? Oh, that's right, the WWE. The WWE set to fight in Florida was coming down to the wire because they had exhausted all of the taped material All of their stock to tape material had been exhausted and they were about to breach a $1 billion contract with Fox. They were about to lose upwards of $205 million. They needed to tape a live WWE show. And so they leaned on Florida governor to make this essential. And now that it's essential, they're flying people in (laughs) at a time where everybody should be at home. They're flying people in from around the country in order to do some filming Because apparently wrestling is now essential business in Florida. Now, this is particularly egregious because it's very clearly due to political connection. The McMahons are very friendly with Trump. As recently as two and a half weeks ago, Linda McMahon was in a Trump cabinet. But what really puts a cherry on top of the awfulness here? is that after securing their essential tag, going, proceeding with this, securing their contract, and after it committed, and after a pack a pro-Trump pack run by Linda McMahon, America First Action, committed $18.5 million to advertise in Florida ahead of the November election, not coincidentally also impacting and benefiting DeSantis, the governor, they turned around and furloughed much of their talent, on-air talent, wrestlers, workers, third-party consultants. If you haven't seen it, Drake Maverick, one wrestler, did a very emotional video about understanding that, about being fired. He said, there's a lot of people I'm not going to get a chance to say goodbye to that I really loved, that I really care about. I gave you my all. You have my everything. <laughs> it's just so ridiculous. On top of that, the WWE paid out to their shareholders a stock dividend, which could have covered the salaries of all the people that they just released for over for at least a year, including the fact that Vince McMahon alone would be under this stock dividend payout entitled to $3.5 million, which could have colored everybody's salaries for at least half the year so they could have chosen to pay employees full salaries until april 2021 and instead they rather cut costs to lower level employees people who need the money cut costs there kept it for themselves lined their own pockets and pumped it into the state of florida to influence november election for their buddy who just deemed them essential cuz it's all a clusterfuck it's so corrupt and i want to burn it down
3: burn, burn. <laughs>
0: After all that burning, it's time to shout out some badass women of the week. Let's start with honorable mentions. Last month, the IOC announced the six winners of the Women in Sports Awards. All of them have made remarkable contributions to the development and encouragement and reinforcement of women's and girls' participation in sports. Let's start. With the winner for Africa, Salima Sukuri, a four-time Olympian in Judo who was the first Algerian and Arab woman to participate in the sport at the Olympics and the first Algerian woman to be named a UNICEF Goodwill Ambassador. The winner for the Americas, Jelaine Demer, who was the co-founder of Conversations on Women in Sports Conference and the president of EGAL Action, Quebec's association for the advancement of women in sports, co-chair of sport for Canada's working group on girls and women in sports and chair of the federal ministers of sports advisory group on girls and women in sports, all for Canada. The winner for Asia is Kim Jin-ho, an Olympic medalist in archery who founded the Goon Council, which provides free archery lessons and scholarships to children, particularly girls from the Republic of Korea. The winner for Europe, Els Trebek, was the first woman to represent Denmark in gymnastics. Shout to you and the winner for Oceania was is Kitty Chiller who was the first woman to was among one of the first women to compete in the modern pentathlon at the Olympic Games and in 2016 she became the first ever female chief de mission of the Australian Olympic team The big winner was the world winner of Skakistan, who uses skateboarding and education to empower children and especially young girls. We featured them on our show in episode 150. Please check it out, that incredible interview. Congratulations to all of those award winners. We also want to send a big blanket shout out to the WNBA Draft Class of 2020. It was certainly unprecedented, but all 36 women, kudos to you. Major shout outs. You are all champions. Shireen also wants to send a special shout out to the Yukon players because she feels like you are the most fabulous and special players of all. And can I get a drum roll, please? Our badass woman of the week is Softball America's 2020 national player from Texas, the University of Texas, Miranda Elish. According to Softball America, she batted a 370 on the year with seven doubles, four home runs, 19 RBIs, while serving as the Longhorns' ace. Her 11 wins were the most of any pitcher in the Big 12, and she ranked sixth in victories in the whole NCAA. She also posted a 1.25 ERA for the campaign with 96 strikeouts, 84 innings of work, if you wanna know what all those numbers means, it means she's absolutely a beast. She's a badass, and she is our badass woman of the week.
4: Woo! All right, folks. What's good in your world, Brenda? I was gonna say gardening and then it snowed yesterday. So I think I have to re-garden everything, so I'm just not sure about that one right now. But I read this really beautiful piece. It's good. It keeps me busy. You know what I mean? I might as well go back at it, right? But I I did read this really beautiful piece by accident. You know, sometimes when you're just scrolling around on Twitter, good things come to pass. Usually not, but in this case it did. And it's from the Poetry Foundation. Maybe some of you have read it. It's by Anjuli Fatima Razakolb. And she wrote an article called, This Was Supposed to Be Beautiful, A Failure. And it's got everything from micro history of sequins to her personal dealings with editors. She's trying to write for a fashion magazine as a Marxist and like a high-end luxury fashion magazine. And it's just a really, really beautiful little piece. And so that was at the Poetry Foundation. And I really liked it. And this is weird, because it's obviously a sad thing for me to see the furloughing of SB Nation employees, including Zito Madu-Zietz, who is a friend of the show and a wonderful writer. But part of what, not enjoying, but what's good, is all the sort of people who have put out SB Nation writers' pieces out there again. And I've been rereading those two and it's just remarkable. And I really admire them and it's been keeping me going.
0: That's great.
4: Shireen. Okay.
2: What's good? Lego. I, I tweeted this out that I've got four kids who are brought up on Lego. They love Lego and they spent much of their childhood playing and creating. My eldest, Saifala, is very big on following the model. So like they're each individual personalities came out. So my youngest Mustafa creates his own designs of Lego. So he would build ships and things just based on his old design. I There was a sale recently and I had a gift card. I'm like, when am I going to use this? So somebody bought me a Toys R Us gift card, whatever. And I got Lego and we all sat around and we made Lego and it was really fun. I'm not logical and thinking mathematician or engineer oriented, but it was actually really fun for me to follow this little booklet with all visuals. And I was like, I don't understand what this picture means. And they're like, that means don't throw Lego at someone's face. I was like, Oh, okay. So, I mean, it was a cool activity and we like, Just sat around and it was it was like me getting back a piece of their childhood. And so much was me running around getting dinner done, cleaning, managing, and they were engaged in this activity on their own. It was something to busy them while I did all the other labor. So this was this was really fun. I've also ordered play doh because it helps with my anxiety and because I think we're all going to sit down. I have four teenagers and we're going to sit down and do play doh. So play doh. So those like preschool activities that I used to do with them, I'm bringing them back now, and they're here for it. Also Belgian waffles. I got my son, Mustafa, a Belgian waffle maker, and I'm perfecting them now. Like, they're getting really good. I also wanted to mention that Ramadan is starting later this week. So for you, those of you that are out there in the Muslim community, my friends who identify spiritually, ethnically, community-wise, I'm those of you who may or may not fast for whatever reasons, I'm just thinking of you all, and it's going to be very, very difficult because this is the first time in my life that anything like this will happen in Ramadan, when it's such a communal, such a beautiful time, where community truly gets together, we can't do it. And it'll be a huge test for many of us. And much of Ramadan is testing us and our resilience and our ability to you know, be part and practice, our faith, this is going to be extra challenging. So I encourage you to reach out to people. There's community supports in place. There's online counseling available for people that feel extra isolated. And for those of you that are alone anyway in Ramadan, um, I will be by myself because my kids will go back to their dad's place for two weeks. It's a very, very long time. So if anybody wants to reach out, if you want to connect, there's a couple of Facebook groups that I have online, shout out to them and shout out to people constantly, constantly making community within this global pandemic that are creating new communities that are holding communities. I know this is a long what's good, but it's just, I feel it's important to share in Ramadan and I hear you and I see you and I look forward to getting through the month with you.
0: Awesome. Jess, what's good with you?
3: Yeah, well. Shereen, I want to tell you that you should watch Lego Masters on Hulu. It's a Fox competitive show, but it like just makes you love Lego even more. And it's really cool to see what people can just do with Lego. I wanted to say one thing that was great this week. The ACLU is suing Idaho over their anti-trans bill that targets trans girls in sports. We've talked about that repeatedly on the show. Lindsay did the hot take about it. So I was really happy to see that the ACLU is taking action. And then I just wanted to like list the things this week that have made me happy. Um, My family got a new cooperative board game called Atlantis Rising. It's taken us a long time to learn how to play it. There are a lot of pieces. um, And so that part has been a little bit frustrating at times, but we really enjoy these cooperative games. We watched Tangled on Disney Plus last night, which I had never seen before, and um, despite the fact that the women's eyes are too big, uh, the overall story is lovely, and I cried at the end. Uh, I've been playing Animal Crossing like everyone else on the Switch. I am obsessed with Brooklyn Nine-Nine right now. You can watch it on Hulu. And then this week, (laughs) I listened to every single episode of a podcast called Noble Blood that exists. It's all about royalty all over the world. Um, It's hosted by Dana Schwartz. And I just found it, like, really compelling. The episodes are, like, 20, 25 minutes, maybe. Uh, And I just just really enjoyed it. So that's Noble Blood.
0: That's awesome. I have to tell you, Jess, when you were tweeting about Tangled, first of all, it made me laugh because that was Samari's first movie in a movie theater. She was three years old, which tells Mm. you... I was like, wow, they are very delayed watching this. We're movie. very delayed, yes. Yeah. But the other thing that I had to tell you, I was like, oh, I have to tell Jess this story. Me and my sister took her to see it. We were in Dallas and we took her to see it and we were like five minutes late to the movie for it to starting. So we watched the whole movie and then at the end when her mom turns out to be like the the witch, the villain. Me and mm-hmm. my sister were like, plot twist! Oh my gosh! How did they hide that? What? Like, I for sure thought that was the dopest. Like, they really got us, and then Come to we find watched out it the
3: first five they minutes. Tell it, exactly, I was like. Oh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but, um, but I will that, forever- we really
0: yeah. Fat, yeah oh yeah yeah but i I will forever think about that movie because Samari again being three and like we' were in the front row, and as soon as the first song came on, she like jumped up and danced, and we were like, this Aww. is we did not go over proper theater etiquette <laughs> there, <you laughs> but anyway, so does that mean you haven't seen like Moana?
4: Nope.
3: No, I've no, seen it. Oh, okay. I okay. haven't. Oh, my gosh. Oh, <laughs> can we do like
0: a, a watch party and I experience it with you?
4: Yes. Yes. I'm yes. putting
0: that on my list. Shireen thinks I've forgotten about her promise to watch Avatar with me. I have not. So I'm putting you on my list, Brenda, for Moana. All right.
4: I also haven't seen Tangled or any other Disney movies all the way through. So Well, I
0: mainly care about Moana and Coco. Okay.
4: okay. Oh, I did see Coco. That's the only one.
0: Okay, okay, very okay. good. So, no. yep. so th- what is good in my life is a little bit random. There's a new digital escape game <laughs> that I'm very excited I'm going to play once I stop talking to you all. Actually, I'm going to sleep and then I will play it. Then. What else? Oh, I'm I'm having a lot of fun reconnecting with friends, particularly my friends from college. We tend to be on house party a lot together now. I haven't talked to them in a few years as consistently as this, and that's been oh. very special. And oh, there's a new Netflix documentary, "How to Fix a Drug Scandal." Which, oh yeah,
3: we started that. It is. Yeah, wow. so.
0: Wow. That, that is, is where rude. I grew up in western Massachusetts.
3: <laughs> yes, I can I told that's what I said to Erin. <laughs> it's a lot, but also tells
0: you a lot about the western part of the state which is very isolated from the east and so has very little oversight which in this case not a great thing, but also a little bit about the politics of the valley. So that is something that has like we binged, it was it was very um it was it was a wild ride. Uh Shireen
2: Yeah, I just wanted to, Amira, say absolutely know that Avatar is available on Netflix for me. I can watch it. My kids are very, very excited because it's going to be awesome. And I'm excited. And my eldest keeps telling me that I will relate to so many social issues and messages in. So I'm ready. I am very, very ready for this. I was a bit intimidated because of your enthusiasm and your knowledge, which also, you know, I'm in awe of. But yes,
0: Let's do it. Let's avatar this shit. Well, I'm glad that we're still planning to watch a show together. I am very excited about that, of course. I had a really good writing week, so I just want to pat myself on the back for like writing in the midst of absolute chaos. So, that was something. And then I also just wanted to shout out a local distillery here, Big Spring Spirit who is using their distillery to make hand sanitizer for everybody here in the community and also still keeping up their sales. And so they delivered a mango mojito premixed Big bottle of alcohol to me as well as um their version of a moscow mule and these are huge bottles that they make and package themselves and so like the fact that you're delivering alcohol while liquor stuff is shut down but also using your distillery to make hand sanitizer is pretty fucking cool and that's what's good That's it for this week's episode of Burn It All Down. Thank you so much for joining us. You can listen and subscribe to Burn It All Down on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, feel free to rate the show, share the show. Please. We love helping amplify it, sharing it with people who don't know it exists. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. Uh, Hit us up in those places. For more information about the show, links, transcripts for each episode, please check out our website, burnitalldownpod.com. You can also email us directly from the site. Give us feedback. We love to hear from you. On the site, you'll also find links to our Teespring merchandise shop, our Patreon as well, our Teespring shop right now is running a promotion so if you use the code stayhome20 that's stayhome20 you get 20% off of your order so if you need to get something to keep you warm a new hoodie for lounging around the house or a blanket or a pillow we have you covered over on our Teespring merch shop I want to send a hearty thank you to our full buy team, our new producer, Kinsey Clark, as well as Shelby Weldon, who is our social media graphics extraordinaire. Thank you for both of you for the work you do on the show. And of course, a hearty thank you to our patrons. We could not do this show without you. You make this all possible. For those of you who are not patrons, reminder that you can join for as little as $2 a month. You'll be entered in giveaways. You get extra content. Um, there's some, our, our latest content is some great discussions on good sports books and movies. Plus, Jessica has the latest Behind the Fern vlog where you get lots of Ralph content with her dog. So I highly, highly suggest that you come join us over there on our Patreon community. Again, I'm Amira Rose Davis. And from me and the rest of the BIAD team, burn on, not out. We'll see you next week, flamethrowers.